Good morning, everybody. Today functions sort of as the last Sunday of our David series, because next week's going to be a little bit different. It'll be, on, it'll be in the David series. going to be looking at some of the songs that David wrote at the beginning and end of his life, but today's sort of like the narrative end of his life, and it is both simultaneously climactic and anticlimactic, but also it's one of those weeks where you realize how awesome the Bible is. I have a friend, uh, he makes a, it sounds like it's something little, it's actually a really big deal, it's huge, it's called The Bible Project, he makes Bible cartoons, and when you see him teach on the Bible, when he discovers something that he's like never seen before, he'll be talking and all of a sudden he'll just like look up at you and go like, dude, you guys, you guys, because uh, He's being blown away by what the Bible is doing, and today is one of those days, but what we have to do is we have to connect multiple plot points that are stretched out the entire life of David and the entirety of the Bible, and you have to figure out a way how to string these kind of plot pieces together and make sense of it. And when you do that, some really cool things come to the surface. So towards the end of David's life, but first, we need to review three of those key plot points or promises because they set the tone and sort of the narrative trajectory of the life of David. Now, we've talked about this since the beginning of the series, but if a movie starts off with making some mysteriously powerful promise, you know that that promise is going to be controlling the narrative throughout the movie. So for example, if you're watching Star Wars and the promise is one day someone will come to bring balance to the force, you're always looking for some character to bring balance to the force. The Bible is very similar where it makes these promises. So when you're reading stories that later develop, you should be looking for the completion fulfillment of these promises. What are those controlling narrative kind of plot points and promises? First, at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, they sin, they're tempted by a snake. God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when we did the Isaiah series, we took a lot of time discussing this, but we looked at the word offspring in that it's Zerah in Hebrew, and it can mean seed, descendant, child, son, or offspring. So the point of the first promise of the Bible is that a a Zera, an offspring, a descendant, someone, a son of Adam, a son of Eve, is going to come and strike the serpent on the head. It's going to like knock him out. But it's not just a promise that one day God's going to send someone to kill like a snake, although many of you would be perfectly happy with that fulfillment. The snake embodies cosmic evil. It embodies Satan himself. So one day, someone is going to come to defeat the serpent, to defeat evil. That's like one day someone's going to come to bring balance to the force in the Star Wars universe. One day someone's going to come to defeat evil. Second major promise Genesis chapter 12, a promise made to Abraham. God forms the people of Israel through Abraham. God promises Abraham this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So God says to Abraham, I am gonna make you a great people, a great nation, you're going to have a land. And this great nation, this great people, this great land is gonna function as a blessing to be a blessing. All the families, all people, all tribes, tongues, nations, somehow are going to be blessed by Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Now the prophets in the Old Testament would look at this promise and they'd kind of look into the future and envision what that would look like and they would say things like, one day Israel will outnumber the grains of sand that they're all on all the beaches. In other words, Israel is going to be too numerous to count. And they would say one day, all people from all nations would come to Israel, would go to Jerusalem to receive blessing and wisdom and justice and righteousness. Promise number three. Promise made to David, which we covered a few weeks ago. Kevin spoke on this. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. So the third promise to David, when is it going to happen? When David's old and ready to die. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, Zerah, seed, child, descendant, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So three promises, three major plot points. One, someone is going to defeat evil. Two, God is also gonna create for himself a people who will be blessed in order that they might bless all people. Promise number three, this people are going, this, these people are going to be led by some type of king, a king who is going to be righteous, a king who is going to do, to do wisely, a king who is going to build God a house. That's old, ancient language for this king, this righteous offspring is gonna build a temple for the Lord. And so what happens in Jewish thought is that there's this buildup that one day a king is going to come to lead a blessed people to be a blessing for the entire world, and in doing so, he himself will conquer evil. You see how all three of those promises and plot points kind of, that they intertwine, they make a braid. A king, a people, blessings for the whole world. That's the controlling narrative. So when you read your Bible, you're looking for these promises to finally be fulfilled. If you're watching Star Wars, it's when is the one who is said to bring balance to the force going to come? Now, before God sets up any of this stuff about a king and a kingdom, though, he gives a warning in the book of Deuteronomy about kings. Because God essentially tells Israel, I don't want you to have a king. It's not my preference. It's not optimal. But if you're going to have a king, these are some rules the king needs to live by. Hundreds of years before the time of David, God says this. When you come to the land that your Lord God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, in Jerusalem, you're going to pick a king or God's gonna pick a king from the Jewish people. 
Now here's the warning. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. So you see like the rules. God's like, I don't want you out of a king, but if you're gonna do it, this is what a king needs to look like. First, He shouldn't acquire a lot of horses. Later, the Bible talks about chariots and horses. And chariots and horses function symbolically as the leaders in Israel trusting in militaristic might and power. So there's like nothing wrong if you're a horse lover. It's not like God hates horses. But what he's saying is that when leaders trust in the kind of advanced military technology of the day, horses and chariots, they are beginning to trust in militaristic might and not in the Lord. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves, but they function symbolically as that. So no horses, especially it says horses from Egypt. Why? Because God delivered his people from Egypt. Second, you're not to have a lot of money. So even though you're king, you're not supposed to hoard excess silver and gold for yourself. And third, you're not supposed to take many wives. That sounds strange to us, but just know that in the ancient Near Eastern world, kings of this time would literally take dozens, sometimes hundreds of wives and concubines unto themselves. So God puts restrictions on what type of king Israel should have. He puts boundaries around them. It's not his ideal, it's not even his preference, but he wants to restrict the role of the king if Israel has a king. All right. David. We're at the end of the sermon series, so David's old. He's an old dude, and he's about to die. Now, David's had some major ups and downs in his life. Uh, Last week, David calmed or quelled the rebellion of Absalom, his son. And so right now, for the last bit of David's life, although he's had some slip-ups, he's been pretty upright, serving the Lord, fearing the Lord, loving the Lord. He's at the end of his life and is going to pass on the kingdom to his son Solomon. This is what he tells Solomon towards the end of his life. When David's time to die drew near. Now again, if you're reading though, what are you thinking about? When's David's promise going to start to be? At the end of David's life, when David is about to die and go to his father's, the promises that God made to David should start to occur. So as you're reading this, there's an anticipation. There's gonna be a son, a son who's gonna build the house of the Lord. He's gonna be wise and be full of truth and justice. He's gonna be the best king we ever had and he just might himself be the one to defeat evil, the serpent. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. First off, that is an awesome charge. Solomon, listen up, show yourself a man, keep God's commands. 
It's this powerful charge by a father to his son before he dies. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now, if you're reading through this book, for the next kind of several chapters, Solomon is displayed as just this amazing, awesome king. And if you know kind of the major plot points of the Bible, if you know the promises, you are saying to yourself, this Solomon guy, he is it. He is the son of David. He is full of wisdom, righteousness, and truth. And there's all kinds of stories about how like the incredible wisdom of Solomon just makes everyone stand in awe and marvel at him. There's this story where Two women bring a baby before Solomon, and they both claim it's their child. They had both recently given birth. One woman apparently crushed the baby in the sleep by accident, rolling over on top. The text doesn't say, but both go before Solomon and say, this is my baby, and this woman's claiming it's hers. And so Solomon just immediately goes, bring a sword, chop the baby in half, give half and half to each mom. And you're going like, is this biblical wisdom? Well, you know what happens. You can anticipate it if you're a mom. The baby's real mother says, let the other woman take it. Take, take the baby. It's not mine. Take it. And then Solomon goes, that's the baby's rightful mother. And people in the, in the biblical scene are just like blown away like this guy. He's good. And so Solomon is over and over again presented as a righteous, upright king. And the Bible gives you clues to this. 1 Kings 4, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the borders of Egypt. So you get this picture. All of Israel is happy and Israel is expanding. Also, they are as many as the sand of the sea. This is the day that the prophets longed for, that Israel would have many children. Remember God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis. It says, one day your descendants will outnumber the stars. And so you're thinking, this is it. This is the time where God's promises find their fulfillment. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind at the sand of the seashore, like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. And this is important. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. What was the hope? Why, why, why is there a good king with the good people in Israel? To be a blessing for all people, for all families. So again, when you're reading this, you're going, this is it. Israel has a king who is blessing all the nations. And in fact, all the nations are now going to Jerusalem to hear about wisdom, truth, justice, and righteousness. This is what we've been anticipating. This is what we've been praying for. This is what we've been longing for. Finally, the day is here.
So what's next then? If you're thinking this Solomon guy is the guy that's going to fulfill the promises that God made to David, he's supposed to build the house of the Lord, a temple. So what does Solomon do in the very next section? He starts to construct the house of the Lord. This is a depiction of the Solomonic temple. This is a massive architectural masterpiece. If you study it, they, they do stuff here that like people, modern day architects and engineers marvel, like how did they pull this off? It was said of this place that you, you didn't hear the sound of the chisel or the hammer when they built it within the temple mount. In other words, they have massive giant stones that are as long as this building and they chiseled them down somewhere else and then brought them up to the mountain of Jerusalem because the mountain's sacred. You don't make that unholy noise there. Solomon did this, and it was beautiful architectural masterpiece. And when it was completed, the text says this, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, if you're new to Christianity or not familiar with the stories in the Old Testament, this is a kind of throwback to something that happens very early on. When God's people, the Israelites, came out of Egypt, there was a tabernacle, and when God's presence would show up, there would be a cloud and smoke. So this is a way of saying God's personal divine presence is now in the temple that Solomon built. So you're going, oh my, this is it. Solomon's king. We got a righteous king, a righteous people. God himself has his literal manifested power and glory residing in the temple. This is it. This is it. Now, this is the picture of Solomon that most of us know, right? Like, especially if you grew up in church, uh, the picture of Solomon is that Solomon is the most wisest man to ever live. He was, a, he was a great king and followed the Lord. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. But oftentimes we find ourselves not talking about like the bad stuff and the ugly stuff. And if you've been here for the last three weeks, you're probably over a lot of the ugly stuff in the Bible. But it's there. God put it there for a reason. God in his infinite wisdom put that stuff there. And so Solomon, we have a picture of him that's sort of sanitized. And yeah, he messed up a little bit, but he was a, a righteous king. Up until this point of his life, that is true. But now all of a sudden, the Bible starts to give us clues. It's like breadcrumbs. Picture breadcrumbs being left out, and you follow the breadcrumbs until you hit a trail. And then if you follow the trail, you can finally reach your destination. The Bible will begin leaving little breadcrumbs all throughout the story and the narrative that lets you know something is not right. 1 Kings 3.1 one of the first breadcrumbs. <clears throat> Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So in of itself may not be bad. Um, what the Bible condemns for kings in the Old Testament is marrying women from other nations because they will draw their heart away from the Lord. In other words, it's not an ethnic thing, it's a religious thing. So you could say, hey, maybe this, this, this woman of Egypt like follows the one true God, but the text doesn't say that. It just kind of lets you wonder, why is Solomon making a marriage alliance? And more importantly, when kings married 
the daughters of other kings and political leaders, it wasn't because they loved each other and were romantically involved. It's a political alliance. Solomon wants the military and the power and the might of Egypt to be on his side. First breadcrumb. Let's continue. Then this incident with a man who helped Solomon build the temple. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the two houses, by the way, are the temple of God and his own house being built simultaneous. That's a clue in of itself. Um, If you say you're going to build a house for God, you might want to focus all your attention on that and then build your house after. Not like, hey, let's do it at the same time. It's like, you know, it's anniversary, 10-year anniversary, and you show up, and you have presents for your wife and for yourself, and you say, hey, I I split what I made. We each got some. It's both our anniversary, right? I get some, you get some. Call it a day. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. In other words, Solomon is going to build these two houses with the supplies that this guy Hiram gives him. In exchange, we'll see, Solomon says, I'm going to build you some cities and you get to keep them. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities of these that you have given me, brother? What kind of cities are these? So they called the land so they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul means like um, a fetter, a binding. It's like you're strapped to something. In other words, Solomon makes a deal with this dude, and when the dude goes up to see the cities that Solomon said he's going to give him, he's like, dude, you promised me like Hawaii, and I show up, and it's like, this is Fresno. This, this is Los Baños. Los Baños, man. This place called the toilets. That's what it translates. You know, some of you from Los Baños say that's not actually what it originally means. <laughs> Donde esta baño? El baño. It's a toilet, man. Okay. A lot of people moving in from the area, moving in from Fresno and Los Baños to Gilroy. It's your first time at church. Welcome. <laughs> so... But what, what does the text clue you into? It's like, dude, did Solomon just give this guy a bad deal? You don't know. It doesn't say. Just like you don't know what's up with the marriage to the woman from Egypt. You just don't know. But there's like breadcrumbs and you follow it and then, and then keep going. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. Okay. Now, you got to wonder, like, did Solomon really get 666 pieces of gold? Or is the Bible doing something else here? So if, if you're unfamiliar with this, the Bible plays with numbers a lot. And it's complicated but yet simple at the same time. In the Bible, seven, good number, really good, really good. That's like God's number. Represents wholeness, completeness, shalom, harmony, all the good stuff. Number six in the Bible, not good, 
not good. It's the number of man. Man is created on the sixth day. If you're familiar with the genealogies in Genesis, there's some real geeky stuff going on where the sixth generation from Cain who murders his brother the sixth generation is a guy named Lamech. He's the first polygamist in the Bible. He sings about how he murders people, how his vengeance is greater than God's. The seventh generation from Adam's son, Seth, is a guy named Enoch. Super cool, good guy, so good. He's like it's zapped up into heaven before he dies. So when the Bible puts three sixes together, it's, it's oftentimes really bad. And even if you're not familiar with the entire Bible, you're just growing up in pop culture, with pop culture alone, you know that like 666 and the end times is a bad thing. Like, for some of you who've been Christians a long time, you know like, remember the late 80s? You were like looking for a 666 everywhere. As soon as you got issued a credit card, you flip it over. Like, oh, you young people, you don't even know. You don't even got credit cards. You just use your Apple Pay, boom. You should look what operating system you're running, though. iOS 666, going to get you in trouble. All right. So, again, you don't know. But here's where the Bible starts to make some obvious hints. Remember, it's like breadcrumbs, and then, all, then you're going, those aren't just random breadcrumbs. They're all there for a reason. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Remember the warning? What are kings not to have? Excess money. Strike one. Not lots of horses and chariots. Strike two. By the way, the Bible um, really condemned not just horses and chariots, but horses and chariots from where? And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. So now if you're reading, you're going, okay, I'm, I'm on the trail now. I'm, you know, like the hunting dog. You're on the trail. You're following it. So you've got the two strikes. Money, horses, one more strike. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and a Hittite woman from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely, this is the reason why you're not to, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And see how the Bible's working all these plot points, weaving them together, weaving them together. At this point in the life, in his life, at the end of his life, Solomon's like a full-blown pagan idolater sex addict. It's like unrestrained. He's doing whatever he wants. And this is how the Bible describes the end of his life. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Now there's an interesting contrast because we just went through the life of David and you know that David wasn't like 
a, like a class act. He's not someone you wanted like your, your, your daughter to grow up and marry. David himself murdered. He was a man of war. He took multiple wives. He did all, many of the similar things. But the Bible wants you to see David and Solomon in different life. Like David, in the midst of his faults and failures, still was a struggling man, struggling to follow the Lord. And some of you know that very well. You know your life is not in the place it should be. It's not. I mean, you're messing up left and right, but deep down in your soul, you still love God. You still love him. You sometimes ask for forgiveness, God. Forgive me for, for not showing you or acting like I love you. But there's this thing that you still struggle through. And for all David's faults and failures, God says of David, he at least pursued me. And when he did sin, he would repent. Doesn't say this of Solomon. This is how the end of his life winds down. Serving other gods. A thousand women, horses, chariots, 666 pieces of gold. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divides and it never recovers. And this is one thing that people don't understand about biblical history, but basically there's like one generation where Israel is strong and united. It's like with David. That's it, pretty much, where it's like healthy and growing and the, and the first part of Solomon's life. And then after, because of the sin and evil and excess, things spiral into chaos out of control. There's a civil war. Israel divides into what we call the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And evil just goes on and on and on for hundreds of years. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know that like for king after king, like 90% of them are bad. Every so often when you're reading the Old Testament, then there's a good king and they're good for a little bit and then they sin. And then there's a few guys who are pretty much good for most of their lives. But even the best of them are flawed and the majority of them are really bad. See, when it says like Solomon served other gods and when it says like some of these kings like Ahaz served other gods, it's not like they, they checked out another church service. I mean, they would go and participate in just vile sexual immorality some of the kings of Israel got caught up in what the other nations did. They began child sacrifice. I mean, this is, this is what it means at the, in the ancient Near Eastern world to serve another god. Go down to their altar and put your baby in the flames before this god. So it's not just like, oh, he's struggling with some things. This is evil. And these are God's people doing these evil acts. So how did, how did Solomon get there? It's a slow, steady, downward trajectory. It's, it's like, in the Bible, it happens in like five pages, but you gotta understand it happens over his lifetime. And the story, the, 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 the picture the story paints is that as Solomon acquires more and more wealth and excess and comfort and power, then he begins to trust the Lord less. And in a sense, like, you know that is true and parallel in your life. When you are comfortable when you are most comfortable, you often find yourself relying on the Lord the least. When you don't have anything to pray about on your hands and knees in tears, you do not go before the Lord in prayer. I mean, maybe you do before you eat or maybe when you go to bed, but when you're not saying, God, I have no 
other hope but you. Deliver me. When it's comfortable, when it's easy in times of excess, that is when the real temptation begins to forget the Lord your God. God warns of this very principle in Deuteronomy where he warned about future kings. This is what he says of Israel while they're wandering around in the desert where they have to literally rely on God to provide daily provision like food. For when I brought them, for when I have brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. So, it's when Israel's in the promised land, when things are good, when Solomon's nation is huge, when you don't worry about famine or pestilence or war, that's when the temptation will truly begin to forget the Lord your God. Solomon began to trust in his might, his power in the military. He began to long for other women, for multiple wives. And it happens slowly, but then it can take over your entire life. It consumes you. At the end of the book of Proverbs, the book compiled by King Solomon, it says this, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. That's a powerful prayer. I don't want to pray that prayer. Seriously, God, don't give me wealth because if I have too much, I know I will begin to trust in my wealth and not trust in you. Don't give me too much. But also, God, don't, don't make me poor because I know I will, I'll still, I'll do whatever it takes to survive. I'll, I'll hurt people. So Lord, you know how much I can handle. You know how much I can have. Put me right there. Put me right in the spot where I have daily bread and enough. I have enough to do right. I have enough to do good in this world. But watch me, because I don't trust myself with too much. That's a powerful prayer. Now that is at the conclusion of the book of Proverbs, which Solomon compiled. But we know that Solomon surely didn't trust in his own wisdom. By the end of his life, he's trusting in earthly wealth, and it makes you trust in earthly things. Now, so f- this is one of those things where so far all I've been talking about is Solomon, right? But like, if, if you're paying attention or you're like me, like, it stopped being about Solomon about five minutes ago, right? It's like, oh, that, that's, that's me. That, this is not about Solomon. This, this is me. I trust in earthly wealth, in earthly things. I don't run to the Lord first and foremost for my deliverance. And that's what excess wealth does. So if you're, when Jesus gave us the Lord's prayer and it says, give us this day our daily bread. Yes, that's metaphoric and spiritual, but it's also literal. It's what people prayed for. God, give me enough bread to eat today. And trust me, when you're not sure where your next meal's coming from, what's your first prayer when you wake up? Lord, I give you thanks. Please provide for me and my family today. And if you're like me, 
what's one of the first things you do when you wake up? You know what I mean? And so it's, it's, this is about Solomon, but it really isn't. This is why the Bible includes these stories, because it's like, oh man, that's me. Now again, David, for all of his faults and failures, look, how, look what he says. David, in a psalm that he wrote, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall while we rise and stand upright. And this is like the anthem of God's people. The world may trust in whatever God, in whatever thing they can find hope in, but God's people trust in the Lord, and because of that, we rise and we stand upright. Now, now you get to uh, what we'd call a hermeneutical problem in the Bible. Hermeneutical is a fancy word for biblical interpretation because you're like going, okay, that's all good, but God still promised David that he's going to have a son who's going to build him a house, who's going to build him the temple. And that was clearly Solomon. And so if you're reading the story, you're going like, something's not right. So, okay, in the Bible, we know that son doesn't have to be direct son. So maybe it's like David's grandkid is going to be that. Or maybe one of his great grandkids is going to be that. And you go through the biblical narrative and you're looking for the one to defeat the serpent. You're looking for the one who's going to bless the entire world. You're looking for that again and again and again. So David has Solomon. Nope. Solomon has Rehoboam. Nope. Rehoboam has Abijah. Nope. Abijah has Asa. Nope. Asa has Jehoshaphat. Nope. And then the line. This is what you skip because it's a long genealogy. Jehoram. Nope. Ahaziah. No. Athaliah. No. Joash. No. Amaziah. No. Uziah. No. Jotham. No. Ahaz. No. Hezekiah. No. Manasseh. This is hundreds of years. Amnon. No. Josiah. No. Jehoshaphat. No. Jehoiakim. No. Jehoiachin. No. Zedekiah. No. Zedekiah is the last king of Israel. Then the kingdom is conquered and there's 500 years of silence. There is no king on the throne in Israel. No true prophet in Israel. This is like darkness and it's like no true son of David. And imagine if one of your, imagine if you're a follower of the one true God at this point. Imagine if you're a Jewish. You've been going on, you're like 500 years do you keep faith? Remember the Israelites when they were in bondage in Egypt, they were slaves for 400 years. Most of us live our lives conditioned on the premise that God needs to answer my prayer in my lifetime, at least. If you were the first generations of slave in Egypt, it would be 400 years before your prayers were answered. Five hundred years of silence. And it seems as if there's no hope. And then in one of the tiniest corners of the Roman Empire, in the shadow of tyranny and oppression, two poor peasants, Mary and Joseph, give birth to Jesus of Nazareth. Complete darkness and oppression. Israel is in bondage to Rome. It's like they're back enslaved in Egypt again. In this tiny part of the Roman Empire, hope is born and a true son of David finally arises. Go back to the requirements. Do not trust in horses and chariots. Do not hoard excess wealth, gold, and silver for yourself. Do not take multiple wives. And what do we see of Jesus? 
we see the one who was rich becoming poor in order that he might give you heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus leaves heaven to give you heaven. He leaves his riches and goes to poverty so that we in spiritual poverty might be spiritually rich. Jesus, as the true son of David, did not trust in horses or chariots. When it's time for his triumphal entry, he has to borrow the donkey that he's going to ride in on. Jesus does not take multiple wives or multiple women. He has one bride, one wife, one woman, the church, whom he dies for to present her sanctified and in splendor unto himself. Jesus is the true son of David. And you see all the little pieces connecting, and that's one of those moments where you just look at the Bible and you go like, dude, you guys, this is so awesome. So awesome. But he's supposed to build a temple too. So what do we see Jesus doing in the New Testament? Because, okay, maybe he came and he met the requirements for a king, but the real king is supposed to have a people who are gonna bless the entire world, and the real king's gonna build a temple. So what do we see in the New Testament? We see people getting confused because Jesus says like, I'm gonna tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And everyone thought he was crazy, but they didn't understand what he meant. He was talking about the temple of his body. And why is he talking like that? Because he's building a different type of house. See, the New Testament authors say that Jesus came to build a house made not with stone or brick, but a spiritual house. And the great paradox is this. Paul the Apostle, even to his own amazement, says the radical, bizarre, extraordinary claim. Paul the Apostle says that if you are a follower of Jesus, you yourself are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God builds a home not with brick or stone. He puts his spirit inside of you. Now, why is that so important? Because if God's people are ever gonna be the people that bless all people on the face of the earth, they certainly cannot do it in their own strength. We saw what the best of kings do when they do things in their own strength. So God's people need God's spirit. So God makes his home inside of you and empowers you through his presence. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God, through Jesus Christ. Now the ushers are gonna come forward and we're gonna take communion. As we take communion, if, if you're new um, or you've never done this before, communion is one of those things that Christians do, believers do. So if you don't know what it is, you're uncomfortable, you're just here as it comes by, you can just pass it to the next person. There's no, no pressure or anything like that. Um, but this is what we're going to do for communion today. We're going to reflect on this verse, and we're going to ask ourselves the hard question, what are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? Solomon trusted in wealth. He trusted in sex. He trusted in raw power, militaristic might, and he failed to trust in the only force in the universe actually capable of saving the Lord God himself. His father David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse, they fall, we rise, we stand upright. 
Jesus Christ is the serpent slayer, the serpent crusher. He is the one that fulfills the promises to Abraham because he creates a people that will bless all families of the earth from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we take communion today, you need to know this. There are people in every corner of God's good green earth right now on this day, Sunday, who come together to worship this Jesus. People from all tribes, tongues, and nations, every color of skin, every type of language, every socioeconomic background on Sundays come together to say Jesus has saved me and blessed me and we are committed to his mission. So we join in that global activity. And Jesus fulfills the Davidic promise because he himself is the king that will be given a throne that will be everlasting. We have a tradition here, new tradition, that we stand when we take the elements, so please stand. The elements stand in place for Jesus himself. They are symbolic of what he's done for us. And so I ask you before you take this, where are you putting your trust? What you put your trust in ultimately becomes your functional God. What is it? Name it. Name it articulated in your head and ask God for his forgiveness and by his spirit the ability to move forward. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, this is my blood spilt for you. As long as you drink this, you proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. So Jesus, we re-pledge our allegiance to you, we commit ourselves to you, and we declare you are the king until your return. Father, reveal our heart's true condition. Give us wisdom before folly. Help us before we fall. Protect us from the evil one, protect us from sin, protect us from ourselves. Empower us to be a people that bless all people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.